This is an ABC podcast. We're starting science fiction this week here on RN Summer with a dummy spit. So it was year 2000, the month was February. And a bunch of top scientists are meeting in Mexico. They're with the International Geosphere Biosphere Program, which investigates global change. Australian climate scientist Will Steffen is there. He's its executive director at the time. And a presentation is underway. Talking about recent changes. And they kept referring to the Holocene. Now, the Holocene is the last approximately 12,000 years of Earth history. It's an epoch in the geologic time scale, a stable, warm period, and it's the one that's allowed humanity to develop agriculture, villages, cities, the societies we know today. Before the Holocene was the Pleistocene, the Ice Age, and that lasted over two and a half million years. Geological time is epic. Until that meeting in Mexico, though, the Holocene was definitely considered the geological age we are in. But someone important in that room... And I could see Paul getting agitated. ...was about to lose his temper. He would sort of build up to something, and you could, you could see visibly that he was getting agitated with what was being said. Will Steffen's talking here about Dutch scientist Paul Crutzen, the pioneering atmospheric chemist and Nobel laureate. And finally, he just burst out and interrupted, and he said, you know, stop saying the Holocene. We're not in the Holocene anymore. And then he, he said, we're in the, and then he stopped because he hadn't actually worked out what he was going to say. <laughs> we're in the, we're in the, and then he just blurted out Anthropocene. And it was obvious where he got that, actually, the, the C-E-N-E ending, meaning a geological time interval, and Anthropo, meaning human. So this is now the human epoch. So he was saying emphatically, the Earth system is moving at an accelerating rate into what we sometimes called planetary terra incognita. We don't know where it's going, but it's left the Holocene. And the other important thing was, this is not a natural swing in the long history of the Earth system. Because when you look at the geologic record, there's been many changes from huge volcanic eruptions, meteorite strikes, ice ages, and so on. But this one is different, being driven by one species, Homo sapiens. We had entered a whole new geological age, the age of humans, the Anthropocene, and it was all our doing. Well, at least that was Paul Crutzen's thunderbolt of a claim. And there was sort of, I think, some stunned silence there for a moment. The conference crowd then spilled out into morning tea, all abuzz. Could the impact of humans on the Earth systems really be that powerful and in such a short time frame? Well, in fact, the buzz hasn't stopped since because in that moment, 21 years ago, something big was started. The instant I heard it, I said, this is really profound and it also seems obvious that why didn't anyone else think that? But that's what Paul was so good at. He could put together so many different pieces And what he said was certainly profound, but then when you looked at it, it it made absolute sense. Not to everyone, though. Geologists are really rigorous about who gets to name a new geological age and on what basis. But there's a reason why everyone in that room took notice of Paul Crutzen. And it wasn't just because he was a Nobel Prize winning scientist. It's because he'd saved the planet once before. I rank him as in our top in terms of the genius category. One is he was an incredible lateral thinker, which is why he was such a brilliant scientist. 
he was simply speaking out, you know, what he thought needs to be said. He never shied away from, you know, getting into a debate. Natasha Mitchell here with Science Friction and our summer season of shows that struck a chord this past year. When Paul Crutzen died last January, at age 87, scientists, environmentalists and others worldwide expressed their deep sadness at the news. Everyone says he was a humble, kind, accessible, ordinary guy, but he was certainly no ordinary scientist. And today you'll hear why we can all be grateful for that. You know, whenever one steps outside, one needs to thank Paul Crutzen. That's because without Paul Crutzen, I might be having even more skin cancers cut off my pale face than I already am. Or worse, the ozone layer acts like the Earth's natural sunscreen against the sun's harmful UV rays. Without it, we'd be fried. And we very nearly were. Until the 1980s, the use of a group of synthetic chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, was widespread. I mean, we didn't even know what we were doing. We were just trying to improve products we had, like deodorant sprays and fridges and so on, making fridges safer basically by using CFCs and so on. Science journalist Christian Schwegel is author of a book called The Anthropocene. Not knowing that this super powerful synthetic chemical had a really dangerous effect way up above our heads. But three scientists were about to find that out for us. So let's rewind to 1959. A young civil engineer working in bridge and building construction spots an ad for a computer programmer at the University of Stockholm's Department of Meteorology. Paul Crutzen, just married, a new dad, had zero programming experience, but I reckon surviving a famine as a schoolboy under Nazi occupation probably makes you fearless and up for anything. So he applied and he landed the job. Leaping forward now to 1970, Paul Crutzen's got a PhD, so I'm skipping a lot of life here because I want to get to the big punchline of saving the planet. He's studying the chemistry of the stratosphere. Now, that's the layer of the Earth's atmosphere, 10 to 50 kilometres above us, which contains the ozone layer. And Crutzen makes a super disturbing discovery that the ozone layer is being destroyed by chemicals produced here on Earth. First, he focused on the nitrous oxides produced by naturally occurring soil bacteria, agricultural fertilisers, and also supersonic aircraft. So that linked in an amazing way living species to ozone, which is, you know, way up in the atmosphere. This is Professor Ram Ramanathan from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego, a pioneering climate scientist and longtime collaborator and friend of Paul Crutzen's. I don't know even if Paul realised it. Uh, that showed everything is connected to everything else in the world. We know that now, but then this was a radical rethink of our relationship with the Earth and its atmosphere. COVID showed us how we are all connected. Same way Paul's work showed how a tiny microorganism in the soil in your backyard can destroy the ozone layer. Then two other scientists, Mario Molina and Sherwood Rowland, came along in 1974 proposing that CFC chemicals could do the same. 
and Paul developed a model. It showed that up to 40% of the ozone layer would be destroyed if we continued to use CFCs at the rate we were. Then in 1985, when the British Antarctic Survey found the hole in the ozone layer above Antarctica, things were suddenly scarily real. Paul Crutzen knew there was no time to waste. Here's Will Steffen. And he was extremely blunt and straightforward about the fact that this is really an existential threat. We've got to get on top of it as fast as we could. He badgered the political side of things too. But that was typical of Paul. He really took the science to the next stage. So he had to push back at the chemical industry, who of course had a vested interest in maintaining the production of CFC chemicals. No, exactly. Ram Ramanathan. He did his science, but also did a lot of background work in getting that science accepted by the uh, political community, political leaders, etc. Which ultimately resulted in the 1987 Montreal Protocol. Exactly. So he was right in the thick of it throughout. The Montreal Protocol was a dramatic and global ban on the production and use of CFCs and other ozone-destroying chemicals. And it worked. Although decades on, the ozone layer is still healing. Why did Paul take all that on? What was it about him? First is the confidence you have in your science. And then the second is your concern for something larger than yourself. Early in his life, Paul Crutzen has seen a lot of human suffering. He grew up in the Netherlands and Amsterdam during Nazi occupation. Science journalist Christian Schweigel. I experienced starving, killing, death, everything. And that was very formative for him, to, to having experienced human suffering to such an extent. And I think that is a very strong force. And that made him, you know, ready to speak out on his science, you know, always based on his data, but, you know, with a larger view on society and impacts on society and, and nature also. If you view this as just science and scientific problem, then you say, oh, I'm not going to cross the line. I'm going to stay within my discipline and let the public figure this out. So you need to have that commitment and compassion for things beyond you. So he had both. Paul Crutzen won the 1995 Nobel Prize for Chemistry with Mario Molina and Sherwood Rowland for their ozone layer discoveries. Politicians had actually paid attention to their science and acted on it. But he said, you know, we were lucky to discover this uh, in time. You know, imagine it. The discovery would have taken place like 20 years later, would have been a different story. And so he said, we just managed to get out of this, uh, or starting to get out of this in, in time. And what else are we doing? With this, climate science really found its feet. And from that point on, Christian Schwegel says Paul Quitson started keeping a tally, a list, as the evidence poured in of all the ways human activity was changing the planet. A bigger story was fermenting in Paul's mind as that list grew, but an awareness was awakened in other people's minds too. The threat with the ozone layer made the limits of the Earth's system tangible for a lot of people. You talk about this idea that we, before Paul Crutzen's work, we kind of had this idea that 
humankind was this sort of minuscule influence, small, and that nature was somehow vast and limitless and that we really had little to bear on it. The idea was that there is this big outside, a nature that we can draw resources from, we then consume in our little islands of civilization, the cities and villages and so on. And then there's this huge nature and huge space where we can dump our leftovers into without anything happening, because it's so big, it, it just dilutes anything we do. And then the ozone layer thread made it clear that we are A, deeply connected to the Earth system, you know, what we do affects it globally and it comes back at us. It comes back in a way that is dangerous to us. And the dramatic findings by Paul Crutzen and his colleagues, they just kept stacking up. For example, he modelled how a nuclear war could cause such extreme smoke pollution would be plunged into a deep freeze, a so-called nuclear winter. That had a key influence on the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. He discovered that we were generating ozone in the Earth's troposphere where it's toxic to us and serves as an even more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. And here's a kicker. The Indian Ocean Project, he co-drove, found that a whopping brown cloud of pollution is masking the true extent of global warming, reducing vital monsoonal rains in some places and melting glaciers in others. Ram Ramanathan co-headed that project. It was originally going to be a small experiment, putting some instruments on a boat in the Indian Ocean and making measurements. Within six months, it grew into one of the most ambitious experiments ever done, you know, with 200 scientists from around the world. We had five aircraft, even the Russians joined us, the French joined us. You had aircraft, you had ships, you had satellites, you had people on the surface collecting data. It was epic. It was epic. And and I say, I think Paul persuaded the European Union to move their satellite over the Indian Ocean. Imagine that. They just moved that entire satellite. So it just opened a whole new door. So we found out how this air pollution we thought was local was really a massive brown cloud blanketing the entire Indian uh, subcontinent and the uh, Indian Ocean, cutting off sunlight. This was a big new finding for climate science. We are yet to see the full nature of the greenhouse gases we have released in the air because it has been masked by this air pollution aerosols. So we knew that air pollution is bad for health, but uh, the really very big impact on climate, this was new. Professor Jos Lelleveld was one of Paul Crutzen's PhD students and eventually succeeded him as long-standing director of the influential Max Planck Institute for Chemistry in Germany. He was part of the Indian Ocean Project too. Carbon dioxide heats the planet, but the particles that create this brown cloud have multiple impacts on climate. And to figure out these details and the, the things that in some way also counterbalance This was quite an intricate process that we had to disentangle. Okay, fast forward now to the year 2000. Paul's officially retired, but he's about to do what he counts as his most important work. More important than the ozone hole. More important than the climate change findings. Remember that list he was keeping of all the ways that humans are influencing the Earth's system? 
It had grown big time. And he's about to mount that case that we've become a powerful geophysical force in our own right. That we have tipped the earth into a new geological age, the Anthropocene, the age of humans. But he needed data to prove it. And this is where Will Steffen, now Emeritus Professor at the Australian National University, joined him in this controversial quest. And what they found painted an explosive picture. Post-1950, it was absolutely clear that all these parameters, whether they be the human ones, population, GDP, nitrogen use, phosphorus use, building dams, water use, all this sort of stuff, just took off like a skyrocket after that. And we looked at the Earth system, and sure enough, the Earth system parameters showed much the same thing. Climate change is front and centre of a lot of political thinking and so on, but really it's far deeper than that. We're changing the entire Earth system, including the biosphere, including the atmosphere, the ocean, the ice, which really started changing from mid-20th century. And Paul and I were a bit puzzled by this because we thought, well, look, a lot of the technologies were already there. What was peculiar about 1950? And that's where John McNeil came in. He's an expert on 20th century history. And his argument that that eventually carried the day was that it was really the economic and political changes post-World War II that unleashed the human enterprise, the new institutions like the World Monetary Fund, things like that, that just, if you like, greased the wheels of the Industrial Revolution and shot it off in a new direction. The Great Acceleration. The Great Acceleration. It was John's term that came out of a conference we had in Germany. Now, it's one thing to say humans are having a dramatic impact on the earth and at an eye-wateringly fast pace, but geologists at the International Commission on Stratigraphy are very particular about how they declare a new geological epoch. They need to see very specific material evidence or markers across time. And how they get that is by drilling cores deep down into the Earth's surface, into ocean beds, ice sheets, lakes, soils, and they're looking for dramatic, really clear demarcations in those layers. Paul Crutzen's provocation about the Anthropocene back in 2000 had spurred a whole lot of new investigations. And when you drill down deep enough, you start to see shifts right around 1950. Most of them are pretty sharp. 70 years is not a very long time period to look at. Paul and I were thinking it would be remarkable if they actually had evidence geologically that the Anthropocene was real, because could you actually see anything? Well, by 2019, the geologists had seen enough to take a formal vote, and an overwhelming majority said the Anthropocene is indeed real geologically, and indeed the mid-20th century is the best start date. All sorts of records from all over the planet with a lot of human-made stuff, be it plastics, concrete, all sorts of things were accumulating all around the planet, every ocean basin, all over the land and so on. It was just quite remarkable. It's one of these things where you have a massive evidence from multiple disciplines that's all internally consistent, which I think makes the case for the Anthropocene one of the most powerful cases for a change in the Earth system than we probably have ever made in the past. I mean, look at Australia. We have snuffed out your coral reefs, right? And a third of Australia was burning. California, one third of our forests are burned. 
and hurricanes are blasting. Professor Ram Ramanathan. I published a study two years ago showing the warming is going to amplify by 50% from one to one and a half degrees in nine years from now. When that planet crosses a one and a half degree warming in nine years from now, climate change is going to move into everyone's living room. Just like COVID, we are living through this horror. I mean, we have become a geological force. The controversy may be, you know, when did that happen? What is not controversial? You know, you go into the bottom of the ocean, it's heating up. There are chlorofluorocarbons at two kilometers deep in the ocean. And there's chlorofluorocarbons on the top of the Mount Everest. Let's just take stock here, hey? In just 70 years, our imprint has been so substantial, so widespread. Some geologists are calling us a geological force, up there with all those natural forces that have shaped the planet over its last four and a half billion years. Now, there's still much debate about the detail, but Paul Crutzen's legacy definitely lives on. One of my last conversations with Paul was about that, that he often said after 2000 that his legacy will be mainly the Anthropocene and not the ozone hole work for which he won the um, Nobel Prize, of course. So I think it was very fitting that just before he did pass away, the geological evidence was coming in that supported his proposal way back in 2000 that, in fact, this was a new epoch in Earth history. But Paul Crutzen didn't rest on the Anthropocene. He was extremely concerned, as all climate scientists are, that we are running out of time to wind back global warming. Jos Lallifeld. But what he knew also from his work in the stratosphere, that the lifetime of these substances, including CO2, carbon dioxide, are so long that there is an enormous delay. So if you start doing something about it today, then it will take decades and maybe even centuries to get rid of the problem. And we see that also with ozone in the stratosphere, you know, that it has stabilized and it's now slightly improving. But, you know, the Montreal Protocol was signed in 1987. So it takes a very long time to fix such problems. Seeing politicians not act on science, trying to buy time for old-type business models and old-type business interests, risking centuries of human progress and well-being and wealth for short-term gains, that drove him crazy. He had some really dark moments about that. Because the knowledge to act, it's there since 20, 30, almost 40 years. A sense of urgency drove Paul Crutzen to consider last resort solutions if things reach crisis point for the climate. He provoked big controversy when he explored a geoengineering fix. So what if, for example, we shot tonnes of sulphate particles up into the stratosphere using missiles? Could they reflect the sun's rays back into space? kind of in the same way that volcanic clouds do after an eruption. Well, Stefan. And that's his engineering background. So that's the sort of thing that Paul would do. He would do these interesting what-if questions just to see, can we actually do something like this? Now, Paul got into hot water by proposing that we might have to do geoengineering of that type, which got heavily criticised, and he backed off a bit from it later on. I was initially also negative about it. I thought also this would give people arguments to do nothing about climate change because we can fix it anyway. Jos Lallifeld. But um, in the end, he convinced me by saying, "Okay, we need to investigate this. If this is a potential solution, we have the obligation to investigate it. And he never proposed to actually apply it. 
The reality of the Anthropocene can be overwhelming to the point of feeling impotent. How do we wind back the juggernaut that is the geological force of humanity? But science journalist Christian Schwegel, he finds the idea empowering. This fusion of Earth's history and human history makes us smaller, not bigger, and makes us aware that what we do now is part of a much, much larger story. And if we don't adjust our civilization to the rhythms of planet Earth, to the metabolism of planet Earth, to the free services, so to speak, we get drinking water, air, everything, the food, yeah, everything, basically. Uh, for me, this is the biggest thing about the Anthropocene idea that it puts us into place and time. For me, driving a car now is a geologic thing. You know, I think about the fuel that is millions of years old and is the result of the sun shining on plants uh, millions of years ago. That is for me a real thing happening while I'm driving a car. You know, I'm connected to these plants that have been growing millions of years ago. And at the same time, through the exhaust, I'm emitting carbon dioxide molecules that, from what science knows, will be around for at least 50,000 years and change the global climate forever. This is not an abstract academic concept, the Anthropocene. For me, this is a felt reality now. And if you do that with all aspects of your life, you know, you have a different way of approaching things. You know, this is like a full frontal war against human wealth and well-being and progress, what we see now. And Paul Goodson was able to put that into words. We know that what we do now is like the biggest lever ever in the hands of a species with a brain attached. My big thanks to Professors Ram Ramanathan, Jos Lelyveld, Will Steffen, and to Christian Schwegel, who's author of The Anthropocene. And thank you, Vale, Paul Crutzen. I'm Natasha Mitchell. You can find me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. And I'm back next week. Tell your friends about the podcast. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.